Okay, Romans chapter 4, verse 3. Tonight our passage is Romans chapter 4 and verse 3. It's actually part of the unit, verses 1 through 3, which we started last week, and it goes like this. Paul says, what, shall, what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. In chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20, we have discussed that man is under the condemnation of sin. Not some men, but all men. And you'll recall Paul gave three categories of persons that were under the condemnation of sin. The immoral person, which was easy to see. The moral person, which was a little more difficult, but Paul made his case that even the moral person was under sin and needed a Savior. And finally, the Jewish person was under sin and needed a Savior. And then in verse 9 of chapter 3, he says, All or under sin. In case we missed that, he says it again in chapter 3, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So chapter 1, verse 18 through 320, which was a major unit that we studied, asserts the universal need for justification. If I was to give you an exam and, and you had a chart to fill out and we had 118 through 320, and, and we said, what's that about? The universal need for justification. Or, everyone needs a Savior. That would be fine, too. But, technically speaking, Paul is, is expounding the universal need. Everyone needs a Savior. No exceptions but one. And I hope you understand who that one was. That was our Lord Jesus Christ himself. But he's the only one that was not born under sin. He's the only one that doesn't sin uh, consistently with, his, with a sinful nature because he didn't have one. In chapter 3, verse 21, we now come to a new section of Paul's letter. And this section is going to run from 321 to 521. So in 118 through 320, we see justification, the need of it, or the universal need of justification. Now in 321 through 521, the next major section of this letter, we'll see justification and, uh, and how it is acquired and Paul will explain that justification is the imputation of God's righteousness that is acquired by all who exercise faith in Jesus Christ. Justification is the imputation of God's righteousness that is acquired by all who exercise faith in Jesus Christ. That's 321 all the way to 521, an incredibly important section of the Word of God. Now, there's a subsection of that that we've already studied in 321 through 31 that Martin Luther called the central place, the central point in all the scriptures. And we studied that over about a four-week period, get, trying to give it its due because of, of its theological importance. And Paul explains that anyone who believes in Jesus Christ, anyone who simply comes to Jesus Christ with the empty hands of faith, bringing nothing with you, acquires a right standing before God. It didn't matter if you were an immoral person, a moral person, or a Jew. Now there's some thinking that is seems to be inherent in mankind that would say that the moral person, or perhaps the moral Jewish person, would have, would have less to be forgiven of, that it would be easier for them to obtain justification. But I'm here to tell you tonight, doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter what you've done, 
And remember this in personal evangelism. It doesn't matter what that person has done. Don't get on your high horse and say, well, that person's a a rapist or that person's a murderer. I don't know about them. Jesus Christ died to make salvation possible for them too. And you go right after them with the gospel just like you would anybody else. In fact, I think you'll find the more difficult person to evangelize is not the person who realizes that they are a horrible person and need a Savior. It's the person that thinks they're they're a pretty good person and doesn't need one quite so bad. And they're kind of juggling the options. Well, do I just go ahead and humble myself and come to Christ with empty hands of faith, or do I take a chance on getting there on my own? That's the more difficult person, in my view, oftentimes, to evangelize. But in chapter 3, verse 21 through 31, Paul says that anyone who believes in Jesus Christ acquires a right standing before God. He also makes a point in the middle of that, in verse 27, to say, Where then is boasting? It is excluded. There is no cause for boasting because we all come with empty hands. If you don't get that out of 321 to 31, you haven't got the main thing that Paul is bringing up. We all come with empty hands. None of us comes with, there's not one category of person that comes with empty hands and another category of person that comes with, uh, with faith plus a few good works too. Leave all the good works behind and come with the empty hands of faith. And Paul makes that clear in chapter one, I mean chapter three, verse twenty-one through thirty-one, and says there's no room for anybody to boast. And now we enter chapter four with that background in mind. Paul will now use one of the most well-known persons in the ancient world, certainly the most well-known person to the to the Jewish nation, with maybe Moses being a very close second, but. Paul uses Father Abraham as the illustration of one who has come with empty hands. Even Father Abraham had to come with the empty hands of faith in order to be uh, reckoned righteous before God or to acquire a right standing before God. Chapter 4 then will be essentially about Abraham. If you're, if you're thinking through Romans sometime and you're, you're trying to remember how the thing flows... And by the way, in seminaries, that's what they do. In some doctoral programs, before you get in, you sit down and you walk them right straight through Paul's argument in Romans. If you can't do that, then you come back when you can. But remember Abraham in chapter 4. Chapter 4 is an illustration, and Abraham is the central figure that's being illustrated. But the chapter serves at least four purposes. It serves to confirm by illustration what was said in 3:21 through 27, namely that there's no cause for boasting before God. If anyone could boast, if anyone could boast in the Jewish mind, it was Father Abraham, arguably the most revered figure in the Old Testament. If anyone could, it was Abraham. But Paul's going to show us even Abraham couldn't. The second thing, it also serves to demonstrate that without a doubt, Abraham was justified before God by faith and not by works. And Paul's going to make sure we understand in the next couple of verses, it's not by faith plus works. It's by faith alone, by grace through faith alone. I admit, in the circles that we run in, this is almost so much a part of us. It's almost so second nature that we forget that there is a a huge segment of the world, a huge segment of the world that considers themselves to be Christian, that would not agree with what we're saying, and in my view, would not agree with the Apostle Paul. Because they say they think it's either by works or by faith plus works. But they reject the notion that it's by grace through faith alone. 
in Christ's law. This is a big issue. If you want to be out there evangelizing, you need to know what you're going to be up against. And this is one of those things. You also need to know how to go to the Scriptures and very calmly and in love point out that, well, Paul disagrees with that particular view of faith plus works. The third thing that this chapter does, it serves to confirm the fact that justification is by faith in the Old Testament as well as by the New Testament. There are people that teach that salvation in the Old Testament is by keeping the law. And salvation in the New Testament is by grace through faith. This is going to show you that's not the case. Granted, the whole idea and the whole teaching and truth of justification by grace through faith alone in Christ alone is expanded in the New Testament. There's a lot more information in the New Testament about it, but it had its beginnings in the Old Testament, something that we'll talk about in depth in just a few minutes. And fourth, it serves to testify to the Jews that God justifies by faith and not by certain privileges, such as the law or rituals like circumcision. Was Abraham saved before or after he was circumcised? Before, long before he was circumcised. So circumcision couldn't save. And not to be crude, I don't mean this crude in any way, but it gives you a clue as to the Jewish mind of the time when they insisted that circumcision was a necessary ritual for salvation. The Jewish faith was a very male-oriented faith. And the idea probably being that if the, the patriarch of the family was circumcised, then everybody else underneath him would have been saved. But you, salvation is an individual thing. It's not a corporate idea. Each member of a family has to, be, has to trust Jesus Christ individually. Just because your mom or dad was a believer. All it, I mean, it doesn't mean that it's totally invaluable to you. It is valuable in the sense that they would have given you the gospel. you still got to make your own decision. So the fourth thing, it serves to testify to the Jews that God justifies by faith and not certain privileges. In verse 1, then, Paul puts forth the example of Abraham, a revered figure to both Jew and many Gentiles. Abraham was known among the Gentiles. Remember, Abraham is the father of many nations. He's not just the father of the Jews. There's many Gentile nations that Abraham fathered, and a bunch of them are fighting now. A lot of the fighting in the Middle East, if not most, if not all the fighting in the Middle East, is going on between the offspring of Abraham. So chapter 1, or this whole chapter, but in verse 1, Paul puts forth Abraham as an example, and he says, What shall we say then that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? We discussed this a little bit last time. The, the Greek of this verse is a little bit difficulty, but the idea is Paul stops the argument after that great section in 321 to 31 where he gives all this initial truth about justification by faith. Then he stops, takes a deep breath, and says, what can we discover from the justification of Father Abraham? You see, he just throws that question out. Now the answer what can we discover from the justification of Father Abraham? A lot. Because if Abraham had to be saved by grace through faith, if he, if he didn't even have a cause for boasting, then certainly you or I wouldn't. The Jewish mind at the time would say that, and we would even say that today. You need to remember, when we get to verse 2, that in the culture that Paul ministered, there's a Jewish view that Abraham about Abraham that was really more legendary than it was factual. So when Paul says in Romans chapter 4, verse 2, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. 
and we, t- we took a look last week at this verse and actually spent most of our time on it. But remember that Abraham's life, at the time that Paul wrote this, Abraham's life was held up as a model of true piety. But it had been distorted so that his works and goodness had become the basis for his right standing before God. So you see, you see what Paul was dealing with and the world that he was dealing with and what he was ministering with here. He was ministering to a world, that a Jewish world, and a, and a Gentile world by virtue of the Jews being the custodians of the gospel and, and spreading this, that Abraham was an example of someone who was saved by his works and his goodness. And one has to scratch their head and say, how can you get that from the Hebrew Scriptures? You have to wonder if they were reading the Hebrew Scriptures. Well, that whole idea is not without precedent, or actually something that happened afterwards. From the, from the early portion of the church, all the way up to about 1500, the time of Martin Luther, John Calvin, Ulrich Zwingli, and Melanchthon, and, and, the, and the crew, the Reformation crew, there were many people who didn't even have the opportunity to read the Scriptures. Even if they had wanted to, they couldn't, because it was only in Latin. The scriptures were restricted to the priesthood only. So if the priesthood said something, the, the people had no, no way of challenging it. Well, it looks like it must have been that way too. The, the people in Jesus' in Jesus's time, in Paul's time, were so dependent upon the, the rabbis and the Pharisees that I don't think they knew their own scriptures. They would rely on texts like this, the prayer of Manasseh, the 8th verse, which was the 2nd century B.C., but still around the time of Paul, that said this, listen so carefully and you'll see the, the fight that Paul had. You'll see why he does what he does. This text says, and this is not the Bible, by the way. This is an extra-biblical text that was written by the rabbis. Therefore, O Lord God of the righteous, thou hast not appointed repentance for the righteous. For Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who did not sin against thee, but thou hast appointed repentance for me, who am a sinner. You see what these people had done? They had placed Abraham and, take my breath away, but Isaac and Jacob, all three of them, as being sinless and not in need of any kind of repentance. So you see what Paul's, you see the world he's living in? You see why he might have gone back through that argument earlier in 118 through, 3, uh, through 320? The immoral person needs a savior? Amen, brother. The moral Gentile needs a Savior? Yeah, we'll go with that too. The Jew needs a Savior? Time out. Maybe there's an exception. Certainly Father Abraham's an exception. Now, wait a minute, I've got a problem with that, Paul. You can almost see him sitting around a coffee shop saying, no, 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 hold on, i got a problem with that. Yeah, I'll go with everybody else, but I'm not going with Father Abraham. And so do you see the brilliance of the Apostle Paul under the ministry of the Holy Spirit in picking out the primo example? He doesn't dodge anybody. He goes right straight to the example of moral purity and piety of his time. Now think for a second, if we were to make the same argument today, I can think of a person right now that worldwide was considered a model of Christian service and personal piety. But I want to tell you right now, that person also needed a Savior. And that person was Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa was known worldwide as one who worked with people that no one else would work with. She, as far as I understand, her own personal life was one of personal piety and morality. So if we were arguing the same thing today, 
in a Gentile culture, we might do this. We might say, well, what, is, what, do we, what do we learn from Mother Teresa? Of course, there's no scripture about her, but I you, you hope you follow the illustration I'm giving. What can we learn from her? Well, if, if she was justified by works, then she'd have something to boast about, before men maybe, but not before God, because she too was born in sin and she committed acts of personal sin and she is in need of a Savior. You see what Paul's doing? So he's taking the primo example of his day and doing the same thing we would do if we brought up Mother Teresa or you can fill in whatever blank. Billy Graham. You know, fill out whoever you want. People who have extremely positive and pious public uh, reputations. This is nothing against Mother Teresa. Nothing against Billy Graham. Nothing against Abraham. It, Paul's just saying everybody's got to come the same way. And unless you've got everybody coming the same way, then somebody that you're witnessing to is going to think they're the exception. Especially, especially if in their personal life they feel like they're more pious than you. And don't cringe too hard, but happens all the time. That people who are doing the witnessing may not have as good a public moral testimony as the one being witnessed to. And so if you let them come with something in their hands, they can look right at you and say, Well, you're saved? Well, I'm better than you. I must be. Don't let him do that. The Apostle Paul didn't. Now, in verse 2, Paul is saying, assuming that Abraham was justified by works, he would have a cause for boasting, but not before God. Now, remember back in chapter 3, verse 27, Paul says boasting is excluded. So he brings up somebody that they might think could boast. And the way he phrases this Greek sentence, one way that it could be understood in a legitimate translation would be assuming that Abraham was justified by works, he would have a cause for boasting, but not before God. What's the implication? Where would the cause for boasting be? Before men. If it wasn't before God, it had to be before men. Now listen carefully. In fact, there was a sense, there is a sense in which Abraham was justified by works before men. And he would have had a cause to boast before men but not before God. So last week we took a look at where that idea came from in James chapter 2. And we see that James says that Abraham was justified by works. Did he contradict the Apostle Paul when he said that? It looks like it on the surface, but, but if anything, he's contradicting Moses because Paul hadn't yet written either Galatians or Romans. When James writes, James, Paul wasn't even on the scene in terms of uh, being well-known at all. James, I believe, was one of the first books written. Some people, Professor Hodges even said that it might even be, have been written as early as the late 30s, but certainly by the early 40s. And Paul doesn't write Galatians until, uh, you know, 48, 49. Paul was, was still in obscurity at this time. So, no, James is not writing to contradict Paul. If anything, James is writing and he's contradicting Moses, but that's not happening either. God forbid we, anybody would, would uh, wake up right at that moment and think that that's what we were saying. Not at all. But if we look carefully at the chronology of the early church, we see that, and, and of James's argument in James from Abraham, we see that he's speaking of a different kind of justification. James is speaking of a justification before men. That's why he uses an, an event that happened in Genesis chapter 22 as this illustration of him being justified before men. But Genesis 22 happened, the events of Genesis 22 happened some 50 years 
after the scriptures indicate that Abraham was justified by faith. So it couldn't be talking about his initial justification. It is talking about justification before men. And James is talking about Abraham's public testimony, his public faith, what we might call today as ambassadorship. If I could take just a a slight aside, in my view, it's entirely possible, if not probable, that Paul would have been very familiar with James' letter. We know that Paul had met James. Uh, Remember the Jerusalem Council of Acts chapter 15. And James' letter, as I just said, predated that very important council where, where Paul and Barnabas went to Jerusalem and, and sat down and had a big powwow with all the leaders of the church, James being the leader of the church in Jerusalem at the time. We also know that at that Jerusalem council, there were great theological discussions among the, the apostles and the elders of the church, and that the subject of those discussions was primarily soteriology, salvation. Now we also, I also believe, based upon the recommendations of that council, that they also must have been discussing what I would call experiential sanctification or progressive sanctification, how to live the Christian life. But the primary point of the discussions that occurred at the Jerusalem Council, and Paul and Barnabas and James were all there. And remember, Paul had not written Galatians by that point, or was about to, he certainly hadn't written Romans by then, but James had already written James. You see my point? If they're all there together and they're talking soteriology, that had to come up. Okay. If, if that's true, and I think that's, that part's not really that debatable, but my point is that although Paul's teaching in Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, stands alone. If you had never read James, if you didn't have Acts 15, you didn't know that they had talked to each other, that Paul was probably very familiar with what James had written, it does stand alone all by itself. You could read Romans and not need James to get the point. But if you've already read James and you know about Acts 15, you might can see what Paul is doing here in a very subtle way. It's not improbable at all that there's a reference to James's letter here in verse 2 with Paul drawing a distinction between what James was talking about in justification before men and what Paul's subject is in justification before God. All this didn't happen in a vacuum. These people all knew each other. It's not like James had never heard of of Paul or vice versa. James predated Paul as a leader of the church. And remember this James that we're talking about was the Lord's half-brother. So he also had a, a, a pretty good role model as a brother as well, half-brother. But with that understanding, I want you to also listen how the text could also be understood. Now, I'm not trying to be ambiguous, but I'm saying that the Greek allows for this translation, assuming that Abraham was justified by works, he would have a cause for boasting, but not before God. And that's, that is a, a very defendable translation. Now what I'm going to give you now is not a translation. This is my paraphrase. Okay. This is not an attempt at a, at a corrected translation. I'm paraphrasing Paul's idea here. So don't write this down. Just listen to it and get the flavor. Paul, when he gets to, to chapter 4, verse 2, is saying something like this. I'll grant you that Abraham was justified by works, and consequently he would have a reason to boast, and would seem to be an exception to my previous assertion 
regarding the exclusion of boasting. I'll grant you that. But his boasting still would be before men and not before God. In other words, Paul is saying, I'm not talking about the same thing that James was talking about in his letter. Not that the people that, that had read James would necessarily be reading Paul now in Romans, at least not the original audience. But the, the Holy Spirit could see down the, the corridors of time, and I think he would see that some, uh, some of the problems that would come up, and this is clearing up any potential confusion. The, the bottom line is, Paul and James were writing about two different things, two different kinds of justification. Remember we said that Luther, this is blue Luther's mind. When he studied James, he said he called it an epistle of straw. He didn't want it in the scriptures. I can't remember, somebody might correct me, but I think he put it in the German translation. He, didn't, he wasn't bold enough to completely take it out altogether, but he didn't feel like it should be in there. But with all due respect to Martin, if he would have spent as much time analyzing James as he did analyzing Romans, I think he would have seen that there's no contradiction there at all. They're talking about two different things. And uh, just in case you can get beat up in heaven, Martin, I'm not trying to give you a hard time <laughs> when it comes down to it. Uh, Martin was the kind of guy that would do that. If he was here, Martin would be right up here now. If there's anything like the Marburg debates, remember in the Marburg debates, uh, between Zwingli and, and Calvin, Zwingli didn't agree with him on something, and Zwingli was more of an academic kind of guy. Calvin was a whoop-your-tail kind of guy, got up right in the middle of the debates, went over to whoop Zwingli's tail right in the middle of that big theological debate. Fortunately, all the people that were with him got in between them and wouldn't let him do that. But all due respect to Brother Martin, he just needed to study James a little more closely, and he would have seen there's no contradiction. Now, in verse 3, Paul says, for what does the scripture say? And in verse 3, he's going to explain the phrase that he mentions in verse 2, not before God. Okay? He's going to have a cause for boasting, but that boasting is not before God. Now, verse 3 explains that phrase, not before God. And he explains it by citing the teaching of the Hebrew scriptures about Abraham's justification. The text he references, and which becomes the focal point for the rest of the chapter, is one of the most important texts in the Old Testament. It's Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. There are some that consider Genesis 15:6 the John 3:16 of the Old Testament. Genesis 15:6 is the only passage in the narrative regarding Abraham in Genesis, which speaks of Abraham's faith as such and of righteousness as something imputed, or if you prefer, reckoned by God. So it's understandable that Paul is going to pick this passage. He's got to. Otherwise, he can't make his point. So Genesis, he picks the John 3.16 of the Old Testament and focuses upon that. I love the way he starts off. And the whole of the letter of Romans is, is written as if Paul is in a really heated, but I'm sure loving, a debate over theology. And now he gets to the point where people are going to disagree with him philosophically. You see what Paul does then? He says, well, let's go back and look and see what the scriptures say. Is that okay if we do that? You know, that's very disarming. If you'll speak the truth in love, 
if someone's having a serious disagreement with you, it, it might be good. Now, don't shove it down their throat. But if you say, well, since both of us agree that the Scriptures are the Word of God, would it be okay if we went back and looked and saw what the Scriptures say about whatever subject it is you're discussing? And they'll have their Scriptures, and you'll have yours, and you'll need to, they may have theirs, I mean, but you should have yours if you're going to do that. And then you can sit down and, and comfortably do that. That's what Paul does here. And he says, basically, let's go to the Scripture. Let's see what the Scriptures say. And I think, rather than translating it for what does the Scripture say, or, or enunciating it that way, Paul's emphasis is really on the word Scripture. And so it would read, for what does the Scripture say? Instead of, what does the prayer of Manasseh say? which is not Scripture, and they even understood that. They wouldn't have been so blasphemous to include that. Or not, not what do I say? Not, not what did James say? Or not what did the, the school of the rabbis say? Is it okay with you if we go back to what the Scriptures say? Now today, if you were to do that, and you were to talk, be talking to a Jewish friend, my advice to you is to use the Hebrew Scriptures. Not necessarily in Hebrew, but I mean by that the Old Testament if you say, well, let's look and see what the Scriptures say about that, and you open, them, open first to John 3.16, they're going to probably reject you based upon their rejecting the New Testament. But I'm here to tell you, you don't have to go to the New Testament to find the Gospel for a Jewish person. First, you need to establish that Abraham is a revered figure, and he is, and then you, you, just, you need to, to establish the same thing that Paul is doing here. Well, if we respect Abraham, and he's a very respectable person, is it okay with you if we go back and look and see how Abraham was justified before God? How can any reasonable person deny that? Now, some can, but they ought not. If they're truly seeking the truth, then you'll find that some really aren't. But Paul goes back and, you, and emphasizes what does the Scripture say? Paul was an apostle, and as such, at times... He performed signs and wonders to authenticate, signs, wonders, and miracles to authenticate his message and authenticate his authority from God. But a great deal of the time, Paul validates his message in the New Testament by citing the Hebrew Scriptures, what we would term the Old Testament. It's much like a lawyer arguing a case before the Supreme Court will cite previous opinions by the court to help validate their particular position. You know, this is what I'd like you to rule. And by the way, you've already, there is a precedent for this. You've ruled in my, uh, consistent with what I'm arguing all these other past times. So, Paul is saying, I teach, I teach that Abraham was justified before God by faith. But I'm not the first person to do that, Paul is saying. Moses was. You see what Paul's done? Now he's taken the second most respected person in most Jewish people's eyes, in all the Jewish faith, and he's using Abraham as an example, and he's saying, let's see what Moses says about Abraham. Brilliant! But not just because he had personal brilliance, because he was a personally brilliant man that was under the control of the Holy Spirit when he writes this. So what else would we expect but a perfect argument? Sometimes you, you know, I watch the Weather Channel, I got cable last year, and I, and I just love watching those radar screens come and go. They, every now and then they have something called the perfect storm. It's neat how everything just comes together and forms a perfect storm on storm stories. 
Well, this is the perfect argument. There is not a hole in this argument. And it should be because God wrote it. It's God's argument, so how can we argue with it? So in the last 8 to 10 minutes that we have tonight, we need to look at Genesis 15:6. Go ahead and turn there. And the reason we need to look there is because this is so important to the argument of Romans chapter 4 that we need to have at least a basic understanding of Genesis 15:6. I understand that we've we've studied this in our Sunday night study. I also understand it was coming up on almost 5 years ago. So if, if there's a little bit of cloudiness, don't be uh, uh, worried about that. We'll clear it up right now. Genesis chapter 15, 6. The text says in the American Standard, Then he, referring to Abraham, Then he believed in the Lord, and he, referring to God, reckoned, in, reckoned it to him as righteousness. Before we can understand the significance of Genesis 15, 6, before we can make a statement like Genesis 15:6 is the John 3:16 of the Old Testament, we need to go back and understand the Old Testament as a whole. What's happening here? In the first couple chapters of Genesis, you have the man and the woman being created, and they're created in, the, in a state of perfection. But immediately, right after that, you, you will remember that Satan challenges the man and the woman, challenges them through the woman, and they both fall in Genesis chapter 3. Then the man and the woman run and hide, but God in grace, and this is very significant, goes and looks for them. Not just the man, not just the woman, but goes for both of them. The seeds of unlimited atonement. But that's a whole different discussion. Also, he has a conversation with them. After the conversation, after both the man and the woman admit that they had been wrong, God passes judgment on the, the serpent, on the woman, and then on the man, or it gives an oracle of judgment against all three. As part of the oracle of judgment against the serpent, we have actually what most people believe, most Old Testament scholars and knew, the first mention of the gospel in the Bible, which is, do you know where that is? Genesis 3.15, in which God says that the seed of the woman will ultimately conquer the seed of the serpent. Now, that doesn't sound like John 3.16, does it? But that's the first mention of good news in the Bible, that there is going to be a way out, and the seed of the serpent is not going to be victorious. Right now, at that point in time in history, it looked really bad. But in Genesis 3.15, we're introduced to an extremely important phrase in the, what we call the theology of the promise. Genesis 3.15 is the promise. And this runs all through the Old Testament. It's a consistent vein that runs all through the Old Testament. There's a promise given in Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman is going to be victorious. The seed of the woman will ultimately conquer the seed of the serpent. The seed of the woman who is ultimately good will ultimately conquer the seed of the serpent who is ultimately evil. Now, in the next chapter, chapter 4, a son is born and his name is Cain. Then finally another one will be born and the name is Abel. And immediately Eve suspects that Cain might be the seed of the woman. Can you see why? There is no real modifiers given to this, so she's going to assume the first offspring that she has will be the one that will ultimately conquer the seed of the serpent. But we learn in Genesis chapter 4, very quickly, that Cain is anything but 
the seed of the woman, who will ultimately be good, to ultimately conquer the evil seed of the serpent, because Cain murders his brother Abel, and so both of them are eliminated from consideration for who this seed of the woman could be. Then a little bit later on, we learn that the seed of the woman is going to come through Seth and not Abel or Cain. As the scriptures move forward in their progression, we come in Genesis chapter 6 to a man by the name of Noah. Noah was the remaining righteous person on earth at the time. Noah, and we can make a case for his family too, but the only one that's a, a for sure, as far as being righteous, is Noah himself. Noah had three sons, and we find later that the, the seed of the woman is going to end up coming down through Shem. This is limited information. That's why I have that in black. But then in Genesis chapter 12, we're introduced to a man that is arguably the most important person that's been introduced since Adam and Eve. And this, this is a progression that took a number of years, but we're introduced to Abraham, or actually Abram. And in the first three verses of Genesis chapter 12, we have the beginnings of the Abrahamic covenant presented. And it goes like this. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. Now listen carefully. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and will make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. As this Abrahamic covenant is unfolded in the next few chapters, we'll see that in seed form, no pun intended, there are three parts to this blessing that was promised Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Those three things are land, seed, and blessing. And all three of those will be expanded upon a little bit later. Now, just to finish this out, and then I want to go back to land, seed, and blessing, then we understand that the line of the seed of the woman, or the servant of the Lord, or Messiah, or Mashiach, is not going to come through Ishmael, but Isaac, not through Esau, but Jacob, and not through any of the other brothers, but Judah. In Second Samuel chapter 7, we find that the line of the Messiah, the seed of the woman, is going to come through David. And then finally, we see the fulfillment of that in the New Testament. The seed of the woman was Jesus of Nazareth. And that's a progression that starts in Genesis and is filtered all through the Old Testament. And Old Testament theologians call that the theology of the promise. The theology of the promise. It began in Genesis 3.15 and is uh, fulfilled once we get to the Gospels in Jesus Christ. But it goes through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David, and then on into uh, Jesus Christ. Now, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8 says, By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed, going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. That event happened chronologically before the verses I just read you. There is a bit of confusion then as to why Paul, I'm sorry, as to why Moses waits until Genesis 15:6 to make this statement about Abraham believed Yahweh and it was credited to him for righteousness. 
and it's caused a, a great deal of consternation on the part of a lot of Old Testament scholars, and a lot of study has been, has been done, and, and there is a fairly universal agreement as to the answer to this dilemma. But Moses would be the first to agree that the point of Abraham's initial faith, we would call it his saving faith, was when he obeyed God and left Ur of the Chaldees. And Hebrews makes that, I believe, clear. That's the point at which he was justified before God. And then in Genesis chapter 12, right after that, then he's given this promise of blessing. And again, the blessing includes land, seed, and then a general category of, of blessing. So, why, in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, do we read, in the New American Standard, after Abraham has had doubts about how he'll have a son, God has reiterated the promise, showed him he'll have it, and took him outside, showed him the stars, and said, your descendants are going to be like this. Then the, te the text in verse 6 says, Then he believed in the Lord, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Do you see why there might be a little chronology problem there? There isn't really one, but it, it can look like that. A careful look at the Hebrew grammar of Genesis 15:6 reveals that the New American Standard's use of the word then is not warranted. Uh, the Hebrew here doesn't indicate a sequential event. There is a way in Hebrew to do it. It's called a vav consecutive. And in, in a vav consecutive, it means this happened, then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. And it's very clear. It's real easy to see. But this is not what is called a vav consecutive. The, the type of grammar that's used here indicates not a sequential event, but rather a parenthetical insertion of an idea. That's why some translations, doing their best to bring forth this idea, will translate it, now Abraham believed, or now Abraham had believed in the Lord and it had been credited to him for righteousness. The New American Standard, trying to stay true to the tenses of the verb, actually create a problem looking like this is where his initial justification was. It wasn't here. It was all the way back when he first left. Abraham was justified by faith 25 years before the events of Genesis 15:6. It just is that this is the place that Moses chose to insert that rather important comment, that he had been justified by faith and had been credited to him for righteousness. Again, we might question, and we're just about out of time, so I'll, we'll do this and then we'll, we'll pick it up next time. We might question, though, why did you wait? Now we understand that you waited. Now we understand that it was a parenthetical statement, but why put the parenthetical statement here? Now let me ex explain that and then we'll close. Remember, Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 has, has been given the initial promise. It wasn't expanded upon, just three verses. That promise includes land, seed, and blessing. Land, seed, and blessing. It wasn't until Moses, through relating the events of Abraham's life, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, chose to expand and further explain the seed part of the, Abrahamic, the initial Abrahamic covenant that this information about Abraham's faith is inserted. It's inserted when the seed part of the blessing is expanded upon. Now, I know it's late and we're almost finished, 
Can you see why Moses might have waited to when the seed part was expanded upon to talk about his faith? Because when does the promise start? When is, what's the initial mention of the promise? The seed of the woman. Abraham's faith that justified him was not in the land that he would get. It was not in the future blessing that he would be uh, given in terms of general blessings. It was in this seed. It was the fact that the seed of the woman was ultimately was going to ultimately conquer the seed of the serpent. So that's why there's a delay between Genesis 12. That's why Moses doesn't insert it in Genesis 12.1 and then give the rest of it. It was there. We know that from the book of Hebrews. But he waits until he has further expanded the theology of the seed of the woman in Abraham's life, and then he inserts it because he doesn't want us to get confused about what Abraham is really believing. And with that, let me close with a quotation from a very, very fine Old Testament scholar, Walter Kaiser, on this issue. Walter Kaiser says, The literal rending of, rendering of Genesis 15:6 is simply, He believed in Yahweh. This, of course, was more than a vague intellectual assent to a supreme deity in general. The object of his faith was to be found in the content of the total promise. Back here. As such, place of pride may be given to the oldest, most ancient, and most central part of that promise, the person of the man of promise signified by that male descendant who was to come from the seed in Genesis 3.15. Indeed, when God first met Abraham, the issue of progeny was not specifically included, but inferred. Here. For the first clause, promised to make Abraham into a great nation. His trust, then, was in the Lord, but particularly in the Lord who had promised. His trust was that the Lord had told the truth about the seed of the woman. That's why it is mentioned in Genesis 15:6 rather than in Genesis chapter 12. So, in this section, Paul is illustrating by using Father Abraham the principle that salvation by grace through faith means that even someone as respected as Father Abraham and perhaps the greatest person of the Old Testament era still had to come with empty hands of faith just like you or me or just like any other mass murderer that decides to change his mind and come to Christ. The idea is if Father Abraham wasn't saved by works nobody's saved by works. We'll continue on this subject next time and um, but for now we better call it a night. Heavenly Father we thank you so much for what Paul has written down for us. We thank you even more for the Holy Spirit's ministry in Paul's life that caused him to create the perfect argument the perfect validation for salvation by grace through faith. Father may we learn it and may we become so absorbed with it that we can teach others about it. And may we be very powerful witnesses for you because of it. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.